Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please take a moment to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes or wherever you tune in. It really helps more folks find us and helps us to continue to get this message out there. Also, don't forget to check out occultlondon.co.uk to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra supportive, consider backing us on Patreon, or you can also find us on Buy Me A Coffee. It's a very small team here. Uh, well, it's actually just me. Um, so currently, um, there isn't a lot of stuff uh, on offer to the Patreons, but this is something that is going to be changing in the near future. So um, if you do join the Patreon, there will be uh, exclusive episodes coming out in the future. And also a massive thanks to all of the people that have already supported us in this way. Um, your donations and kindness is very much appreciated. Um, so thank you very, very much. Now let's dive into today's episode. In our last few episodes, we have been discussing the Circle of the Magician and also the Four Quarters. So in this episode, we will be continuing our discussion by looking at the final quarter of the circle, which is the cardinal direction of the north. The northern quarter, as with the others, has a lot of different symbolism and meanings attributed to it in many different magical traditions and religious practices. And it also has a lot of different meanings from a source of power, fertility and protection, also to a symbol of challenge introspection and also darkness. The actual word north originates from the old high German nought, itself descending from the proto-Indian European ner meaning left as the north lies left when we face the sunrise. Also the Hebrew word for north is zaphon meaning hidden as in the direction in which you will never see the sun, which again emphasises this sense of secrecy, hiddenness, and also kind of alludes to this mystical and elusive nature of the North. The concept of the North has been deeply entrenched in the spiritual landscapes of various different cultures, extending far beyond their geographic significance and also each civilization has kind of woven the north into its mythology and religious practices, attributing to it characteristics that obviously reflect their different worldviews and cosmologies. In ancient Egypt, the north was not just a cardinal direction, but was also considered to be a celestial gateway imbued with religious significance. And these ideas originated partly with their observation that the life-giving Nile, which flooded their lands annually, appeared to have its mysterious source from the north, symbolising a source of life, of regeneration, but also, importantly, the north was also connected with astronomy. And Egyptian astronomers, with their keen observations of the night sky, identified two luminous stars that seemed to perpetually circle the North Pole and these stars were known as the Indestructibles which translates to the ones not knowing destruction. 
And this name reflected the Egyptian belief in the immutable and the perpetual nature of the northern stars and was also a testament really to their understanding of the constancy of the northern celestial sphere. The name the Indestructibles was not chosen lightly. It also bears you know, deep sort of symbolic ideas behind it which resonate really closely with the Egyptian ideology of the enduring afterlife. The unwavering position of these stars made them reliable celestial markers, but they also symbolised the eternal existence that awaited the pharaohs after death. And the Egyptians envisioned these stars as being steadfast portal to the heavens, an opening in the night sky through which the souls of their departed rulers could ascend and join the pantheons of gods. In the context of Egyptian funerary practices, this northern route was um, considered to be a pathway to the afterlife and it ensured a pharaoh's immortality and constant rebirth. These stars today are known as Kokab or Beta Ursa Minoris, which is positioned in the bowl of Ursa Minor or the Little Dipper, and also Mizar, Zeta Ursae Majoris, which is located at the midsection of the Big Dipper in Ursa Major. And they really served as celestial signposts. And as I mentioned, their fixed position in the star was kind of directly related to this idea of the North as being this divine and an imperishable realm. So therefore, obviously signifying this idea of eternal life. Also, interestingly, the pyramids, which were the grand tombs built for the pharaohs, a lot of those were actually aligned with such precision that they reflected the importance of these internal stars and they often incorporated their symbolism into the architecture itself, which was obviously meant to serve the as a vessel for the king's immortal journey. There's a beautiful passage from the pyramid texts that discusses the spirit of the pharaoh going into the stars, which goes as follows. May you cross the sky united in the dark. May you rise in light land, the place in which you shine. Horus, go proclaim to the powers of the east and their spirits. This Unas comes, a spirit indestructible, whom he wishes he will live whom he wishes to die will die. And that's a quote from the pyramid texts. Moving over to Greece, the the north was also very important in their mythology. Uh, Boreas, the god of the north wind, was revered as really the harbinger of the cold winter months, and he was depicted as powerful and tempestuous, and his breath bringing the chill that blankets the earth which obviously signalled a period of rest and introspection. Also, the Greeks envisioned their pantheon of gods as residing in the far reaches of the north on Mount Olympus. And this mountain was not just considered to be a physical highest point in Greece, but was also symbolic of the peak of divine presence and authority, where the gods would convene to oversee the affairs of mortals and immortals. The importance of Boreas can be seen in lots of different 
poems and texts, but one that I particularly like is a story from Aesop's Fables, which I'm sure a lot of us read when we were young. This is a really fabulous book of wisdom dating from the 6th century BC, which describes a battle between Boreas, the north, and Helios, the sun. And it goes as follows. Boreas, the north wind, and Helios, the sun, disputed as to which was the most powerful and agreed that... Boreas, the north wind, and Helios, the sun, disputed as to which was the most powerful, and agreed that he should be declared the victor who could first strip a wayfaring man of his clothes. Boreas, the north wind, first tried his power and blew with all his might, but the keener his blasts, the closer the traveller wrapped his cloak around him, until at last, resigning all hope of victory, the wind called upon Helios, the sun, to see what he could do. Helios suddenly shone out all of his warmth. The traveller no longer felt his genial rays. Then he took off one garment after another. And at last, fairly overcome with heat, undressed and bathed in a stream that lay in his path. Persuasion is better than force. And that's the story about Boreas. The North Wind um, from Aesop's Fables, which is a Greek, um, a Greek book of, of fables, really, from the the sixth century BC. In Roman culture, the North also had its distinct personification uh, and gods through Aquilo, who was also the North Wind, and this deity was not only a physical manifestation of nature's might, but was also considered to be a metaphor for the kind of cleansing action, but also destructive power of the elements. And the Romans also placed considerable navigational and symbolic importance to the North Star, Polaris. So for travellers travelling by land or sea, Polaris was this vital point of reference, a fixed beacon in the northern sky. And from a spiritual context, it was regarded as a steadfast guide for souls navigating the uncertainties of life and the afterlife. Also in Celtic mythology, the North is connected to the figure of the Kaliak, known as the Veiled One, who was a deity of great antiquity, representing kind of this formidable forces of nature, especially during the, the harsh winter months. In many of the myths from the Gaelic cultures, so including Irish, Scottish and Manx, the Kaliak is a mythical old woman who is linked to the creation of the land and to the weather, particularly to storms of winter. And the term Kaliak itself means old woman or hag and is still used with this meaning in Irish and Scottish languages today. In some Irish folklore, she's also referred to as the Hag of Bearer, and in Scotland, she's also known as Bearer, the Queen of Winter. And there's lots of different sources that go into depth about the Caliag. However, a, a good description I found is in Wonder Tales from Scottish Myth and Legend by Donald Mackenzie, 
who describes the Kaliak as follows. Dark Bearer was the mother of all gods and goddesses in Scotland. She was of great height and very old, and everyone feared her. When roused to anger, she was as fierce as the biting north wind and harsh as the tempest-stricken sea. Each winter she reigned as queen of the four red divisions of the world, and none disputed her stay. But when the sweet spring season drew nigh, her subjects began to rebel against her, and to long for the coming of the summer king, Angus of the white steed and bride, his beautiful queen, who were loved by all. For they were the bringers of plenty and of bright and happy days. It enraged Bearer greatly to find her power passing away, and she tried her utmost to prolong the winter season by raising spring storms and sending blighting frost to kill early flowers and keep the grass from growing. She lived for hundreds of years because at the beginning of every spring she drank the magic waters of the Well of Youth, which bubbles up in the green island of the west. This was a floating island where summer was the only season and the trees were always bright, with blossom and laden with fruit. It drifted about on the silver tides of the blue Atlantic, and sometimes appeared off the western coasts of Ireland, and sometimes close to the Hebrides. Many bold mariners have steered their galleys up and down the ocean, searching for the green island in vain. On a calm morning, they might sail past its shores, and yet never know it was near at hand, for oft times it lay hidden in a twinkling mist. Men have caught glimpse of it from the shore, but while they gazed on its beauty with eyes of wonder, it vanished suddenly from sight by sinking beneath the waves like the setting sun. Bearer, however, always knew where to find the green island when the time came for her to visit. So as we can see, the um, the Kaliak is kind of like this almost combination of being this creative force, but also is in kind of in constant battle with the powers of spring and uh, this is this is a common theme that you get in lots of different mythology she's also said to have crafted the hills and the valleys with her supernatural powers and as the seasons turned colder she reigned supreme from her northern throne and the kaliak is not only a symbol of the winter but also of the profound you know, transformation really that the season of winter brings. It's the time when, personally, I often find you feel the most creative when you're coming into the darker times because it's when you're kind of more likely to be inside uh, where it's warm and you're more likely to focus on introspective activities rather than, um, you know, being out and about with the sun. And I think that's kind of very relevant to this kind of idea of, of the Kaliak. It was also said that she aged throughout the year, but obviously is reborn anew with the coming of spring. And again, you've got this sort of uh, cyclical nature of life, death and rebirth. 
there's a really great poem called the old lady of beer that she's meant to have sung on a quiet and stormy nights it goes like this and i wanted to just read it out for you as well bearer the queen of winter O life that ebbs like the sea i am weary and old i am weary and old oh how happy can i be all alone in the dark and the cold i am the old bearer again my mantle no longer is green i think of my beauty with pain and a days when another was queen my arms are withered and thin my hair once golden is gray tis winter my rain doth begin youth's summer has faded away youth's summer and autumn have fled i am weary and old i am weary and old every flower must fade and fall dead when the winds blow cold when the winds blow cold and that's a very old um gaelic poem or song that uh, the kaliak is meant to have sung when she wanders around in these dark and stormy nights of the winter and it really kind of it's very evocative that poem you can really kind of almost feel this um, it almost sends shivers down your spine uh, reading it in the christian tradition the cardinal direction of north has different layers of symbolism which i wanted to kind of talk about briefly and then we'll talk about the magic stuff um, historically the east is associated with the direction of the garden of eden and the second coming of christ um, so it makes it a principal direction in christian liturgy and also architecture so consequently as its counterpart the north has been associated with the forces of darkness and malevolence and it was commonly believed to be the dwelling place of the devil and his minions and this may be an idea that's been reinforced by the harshness and extended periods of darkness that we unfortunately suffer in the the northern climates we see this in lots of different examples um, so for example in certain anglo-saxon churches in the uk you can find a devil's door which is located near to the baptismal font and this was traditionally opened during the baptismal vows of renouncing satan and the doors were basically intended to be left open during a, a baptism so that any evil spirits could escape as the child was christened because in those days they believed that until a child was christened then uh, evil spirits could could actually go into into that child um, so the, the christening almost acts like a, an exorcism from that perspective also in medieval times the the north side of the church was considered to be the sinister side which is lat from the latin sinestra meaning left and it was also the side where the evil spirits could hide in the shadows of the building um, we also find the northern sections of churchyards were often devoid of burial sites and the north side of an altar was often referred to using the term sinistrum cornu also if we look at the bible there's there's different um 
examples with regards to the north. So, for example, we have Jeremiah 1.14. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Out of the north disaster shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. And also Ezekiel 38.15. You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. Also in Christian art and literature, the north is sometimes depicted as the place from which hostile armies or forces come. Um, this may stem from the direction and orientation of medieval maps, where often you know Jerusalem was placed at the centre, and the north often represented the kind of unknown or the unconverted, unevangelized areas of the world. And often the left side of church maps would represent the realm of the heathens or pagans. However, there was some hope to the north in some of these traditions because it was thought that it was not only the place from which challenges originated, but also from which the direction from which redemption can come um, with this idea of conquering evil with good. Um, so, for example, in the Song of Solomon, which is a really beautiful um, poem that's, that's definitely worth studying, there's an interesting piece where the bride invites the north wind to blow on her garden, saying, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. From a liturgical context, the orientation of churches with the altar facing east and the entrance from the west often implies that the left side of the church or the gospel side is orientated to the north. And again, this can obviously symbolise that idea of shining light in the darkness as well. Um, as the Psalm 75 reads, For salvation cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. So that's some of the kind of Christian ideas behind it, but I wanted to kind of move on to some of the magical stuff as well. <clears throat> the reason I cover some of the Christian things is not because um, I'm heavily into that, but um, because it's such a fundamental aspect of Western uh, culture and also the development of the Western mystery tradition, um, it's, it's an important thing to kind of uh, think about, particularly with how some of the magical traditions developed. From the magical perspective, the North is connected with the elements of the Earth and is also normally associated with the time of darkness and the sun at midnight. The term the sun at midnight is something you read in quite a lot of different rituals and you've probably heard it before. But this is an old phrase which comes from stories of the sun travelling through the underworld during the night, through the lands of death, and then becoming transformed by that and being reborn. And from a mystical perspective, this phrase is also representative of the process of magical initiation. So initiates were thought to be twice born, so taken symbolically through the underworld and then reborn. The North is also, from a magical perspective, associated with the winter solstice, which is 
the darkest time of the year and it is after this point in time that the light increases and it's also during this time that we have redeeming gods such as Jesus, the Oak King, being born as the Son of Light born into the world and the idea of the manifestation of the Child of Light is important to the Court of the North for one of its key qualities is this idea of the seed of light growing under the earth in the darkness to be reborn when the spring returns. Each of the elemental cardinal directions has a part to play in this manifestation of the seed of light, but it's in the north that things become solidified and where the actual sort of birth begins to take place. So even the darkest, darkest time, that's when the first spark of light begins to emerge, which is a nice kind of thing to think about, particularly with all the all the darkness and difficult things going on in the world today. Um, the author Ina Custis van Bergen um, describes this really nicely. I wanted to quote, Manifestation is the ability to give form to what you have prepared by working with the previous elements. You have formulated ideas and thoughts in the East. You have vitalized them with your passions in the South. You've taken them inside yourself and transformed them in the West. Now the time has come to give them hands and feet in the North and to make them concrete on Earth. The descent of the Divine Child in your consciousness is the result of a spiritual process that is described in many mystical and magical systems. From a magical weapon or tool perspective, the North is normally symbolised by the pentacle, sometimes a shield, sometimes even a, a stone or a crystal. And these emblems are not meant to represent the... they're really meant to represent the grounding force of nature, the material world, the goddess of the earth and the manifestation of will into reality. They also stand for the steadfastness and reliability of the North, providing a foundation and a base for all of our magical works and also serving as a protective bastion against the unseen. The pentacle is the heaviest and densest element within our selection of tools and obviously from a Kabbalistic perspective is representative of the world of Malkut, the material plane, Asaya, the forces of the spiritual world in manifestation and also protection but also the divine on earth. As William Gray describes it in his excellent book Temple Magic, he, he describes the pentacle as follows, a perfect symbol of earth we shall build no magical or material cosmos without it. As we've seen from our discussions on the Tree of Life, um, all creation begins in the unmanifest of the Ein Sof Or, before emerging into the imagination of the divine artist and then eventually finding its expression in the form of the world or the microcosm of the world. The final hay of the Tetragrammaton. So we have Yod, Hay, Vow, Hay. So in magical terms, the North is representative of our bodies 
and the densest form of matter, but it is also representative of the actual physical substance of our bodies and the vehicle for our spirit and our soul. So we're not trying to like denigrate our bodies or you know go to the these kind of some some traditions actually have the view that you know the physical realm is is evil and you need to kind of get away from it. But in the Kabbalistic view, um, you know, they really believe in the idea that all things are holy. So the earth should really be considered as the densest form of divine matter rather than the sort of Cartesian dualistic viewpoint of heaven is good, hell is bad. Dense matter is all relative also, so there are physical bodies ruled by this sphere. If you think about the Kabbalistic viewpoint that there is a tree in every sephira, then the north and the pentacle is representative of the symbolic representation of earth and Malkut in every single sphere on the tree of life. And that obviously includes Keter as well. And this is partly why you have the symbolic relationship of Metatron, Keter and Sandalphon, Malkut. Heaven is on earth and earth is in heaven. And I think this is what Dion Fortune meant when she wrote in her book The Training and the Work of the Initiate. The key to practical occultism is in the mind, but no occult operation can be reckoned to be completed unless it be brought through the plane of matter. And that's a quote from Dion Fortune. From a Masonic perspective as well, the North has similar connotations and symbolism to what we've already discussed. Um, so the, the direction of the North in a Masonic Lodge is normally a place devoid of light. And it also doesn't have a primary officer occupying that quarter. So in uh, in normal in normal kind of masonry, you'd have like the worshipful master in the east, then you'd have the junior warden in the south, and then you'd have the senior warden in the west. Um, and the north does not actually have anybody in there. And this is really kind of meant to represent this idea that the the of the uninitiated state of the profane or the unilluminated and it's the masonic journey from that northern darkness towards the enlightenment of the east that kind of really captures the the masonic path to knowledge and illumination as is encapsulated in the following verse two marble doors unfold on either side sacred the south by which the gods descend but mortals enter on the northern end so it's this idea that the mortals come through um, come through from the north into, into a state of darkness and then they're brought from the darkness into the light into illumination in the east which as we said before is this idea of the rising sun so you can always think about it as well from the point of view of the spark of spirit that we were talking about the divine child that's the spark of light that's in the darkness of the winter you can kind of think about that as well from the point of view of the initiate or the candidate that's coming into uh, the lodge they, they all carry that spark within them and then that is brought through into fruition through the process of initiation and the same principles obviously would go go for other um, initiatic 
practices as well. It's this idea of a spark of light that will gradually unfold and become brighter and brighter as the candidate, as the initiate, begins to realise that potential. We also discussed, um, I wanted to cover the elements and the archangelic attributions of the Northern Quarter as well, beginning with the elementals. As we heard in our episode on the cardinal directions, each of the quarters is inhabited and ruled by a specific elemental being. And these are powerful beings that really kind of embody the essence of their element. And while there's lots of different meanings behind them, they can, a good way of thinking about them is is almost like um, different aspects or psychic elements of the particular elemental forces that shape the universe and make up each element. In the north we have the elemental ruler King Gobe and the elemental creatures are the gnomes. There's very little information out there about the the actual kings, Um, certainly not from a kind of academic point of view. There's lots of sort of channeled material Um, which I don't tend to like too much. Um, But King Gobe can really be considered to be the higher astral part of the Earth element. And a good way of visualising King Gobe is really similar in appearance to uh, your sort of gnome archetype, but obviously uh, taller, so kind of very kind of earthy in appearance and aspect. The elementals that King Gobe rules also, as I mentioned, are the gnomes, and they're also known as the Kupitali and the Pygmies in some grimoires. And as we discussed in previous episodes, the names from the names for the majority of these elementals come originally from Paracelsus, however, they're probably much earlier than that. It's just that's one of the earliest kind of references to them. Um, they are described by the comp to Gabali as follows. The earth is filled well nigh to its centre with gnomes, people of slight stature, who are the guardians of treasures, minerals and precious stones. They are ingenious, friends of man and easy to govern. Although the origin of the name gnome is not clear, some scholars have suggested it may be rooted in the Greek genomos, which translates to Earth Dweller. And the gnomes themselves are beings traditionally associated with the Earth, the subterranean, often found in mines, beneath mountains, um, places that are rich in metals and gems. And they're also thought to work closely with the life forces of plants and trees and be very involved with of all aspects of those those kind of earthy aspects of the earth if that makes sense we also have stories of gnomes residing in mines that were called knockers and we can hear about this in some of the cornish mythology um, so named for their habit of wrapping on mine walls um, a practice that served as a warning for impending disasters and there's actually you know written texts about this so one two or three knocks from a knocker were signs that miners should evacuate to safer grounds 
there were also uh, stories about the gnomes um, being willing to to work for compensation as well and being extremely kind of talented at mining. However, if anyone tried to deceive a knocker, they would often find themselves plagued by misfortune. There's a nice description of the gnomes in the Den Eldra Edas Gudasanga um, Gajalrup manuscript from 1895 that goes as follows. The type of gnome most frequently seen is the brownie or elf, a mischievous and grotesque little creature from 12 to 18 inches high, usually dressed in green or russet brown. Most of them appear as very aged, often with long white beards and their fingers are inclined to rotundity. They can be seen scampering out of holes in the stumps of trees, and sometimes they vanish by actually dissolving into the tree itself. Typically gnomes are depicted as diminutive or small, um, usually you know one meter in height or shorter, um, but there are lots of legends about gnomes having the ability to alter their size and form at will, um, and even transform into giants. Some texts have also suggested that fairies um, could actually potentially belong to the same category of gnomes. For example, we have in one of the Sloan manuscripts. Of this terrestrial order are likewise those which are commonly called fairies. It is credibly asserted that in ancient times that many of those aforesaid gnomes, fairies, elves and other terrestrial wandering spirits have been seen and heard amongst men. But now it is said that they are not so frequent. We will now move on to discussing the Archangel of the North. And this is a really interesting topic as there can be considered two Archangels that cover the North and the Earth element. And these are Sandalphon and Uriel. And the order of the angels is the Ashim. I won't go into massive amounts of detail on Uriel and Sandalphon as we did whole episodes on these two Archangels a few years ago. So if you are interested in finding more about them, then please check those episodes out. They are still available. But just to summarise, the Archangel Uriel, his name means light of God or fire of God. In Hebrew, he's often depicted holding a flaming sword or a book, which symbolises the flame of knowledge or the light of truth that he brings to mankind. And he is regarded as the angel of repentance and is called upon to guide the faithful through the complexities and the hardships of life with his wisdom. He is described in the Book of Enoch as the angel who holds guard over thunder and terror and is meant to protect humanity from from dark forces really. Um, and is also meant to have brought Kabbalah to the earth, so is a good archangel to have as an ally in times of trouble. Archangel Sandalphon is a bit more complex, um, and some he's thought to represent more the kind of mental aspects of the earth, or rather be the guardian of the soul of the earth itself. Sandalphon is meant to have been human at one point, known as Elijah, 
who is meant to have not died but rather transformed into a higher level where he serves as an example almost like a kind of inner plane teacher to humanity um, and he's also meant to be the twin brother of Metatron and the tallest angel in heaven the order of angels to which the north is associated with is the Ashim and in angelology the Ashim are part of the third sphere so they're considered to be the closest to humanity's affairs and they're also known as the souls of fire and are often associated with divine inspiration and the aspiration to bring one's actions into alignment with the will of the divine and the Ashim really kind of serve as intermediaries so they're bringing messages to humans and offering the guidance necessary for it's really sort of personal development and spiritual enlightenment the final correspondences i wanted to discuss is the holy living creature attributed to the northern quarter as we discussed in our previous episodes these powerful beings originate from the vision of ezekiel and are often used in the western mystery tradition to represent the highest spiritual aspects of that element so the keta of earth but they can also be seen as the final hay of the tetragrammaton in the case of the north in the case of the northern quarter the correspondences for the north is the bull or the winged bull which can be thought to symbolize not only strength and steadfastness but also the fertile grounding of spirituality in the material world as it's written in the golden dawn ritual the priest with the mask of the ox spake and said thou canst not pass the gate of the northern heaven unless thou canst tell me my name of which is responded satan in the abode of shu the bull of earth is thy name thou art kepra the sun at night the winged bull of the north is not merely a symbol of brute strength and determination but it also transcends these attributes to symbolize this anchoring of spiritual light within the tangible and the material realm this heavy farming creature is laden with symbolic significance that we see across many cultures for example in ancient Assyria the winged bull was a protective deity um, and we see this theme echoed in the writings of Dion Fortune when she discusses some of the deeper sort of esoteric symbolism of the winged bull um, in her novel which is called the same and if you go to the British Museum in London you can see some wonderful example um, of this winged bull which is actually the main thing that Dion Fortune was writing about also in astrology we find obviously the bull finds its place in the sign of Taurus which is kind of grounding the zodiac in the earthiness of its sign also if you look at the Minoan uh, civilization the bull emerges from the sea it's a divine gift from Poseidon which again suggests this synthesis of the earthly and the ocean and the material and the spiritual and this action of bringing the spiritual down to the material 
also resonates with some of the kind of other symbolism that we discussed last week with regards to Dion Fortune and the Cosmic Doctrine, where she associates the winged bull with spiritual beings that are called the, the Lords of Form. These beings, as we discussed previously, are thought to be spiritual forces that kind of help to shape the cosmos and are described in relation to the winged bull as follows. The Lords of Form are the psychic forces that direct all the chemical and physical processes. The Lords of Form cause a twofold movement. Under the influence of the Lords of Form, consciousness descends from the source into matter. The winged bull makes it possible for force to function by creating vessels upon which this can happen. Under the influence of the winged bull, consciousness descended into new bodies, the vessels that enabled the growing light to become visible. All ideals, new forms, plans and projects rise as a seed from the bottom where they have rested towards the growing lights. By their twofold movement, the lords of form create friction, without which development is not possible. So again, it's this idea of this power um, bringing down into the manifestation where it is, becomes strengthened and becomes realized into its kind of idealized self through these processes of the earth, through the processes of, of incarnating into the material realm. So thus we can see that the symbol of the wing bull kind of really stands as a testament to the sacred act of creation. The bull with its wings invites us to acknowledge the divinity embedded within the creative processes that bring forth existence itself. As we think about these symbols, we gain not only a deeper understanding of the symbol itself, but also, I think, a better appreciation for the spiritual aspect that's in the physical world that we actually live in. That's all we've got time for in this episode. However, you know, as we've seen, there's many different symbolic representations of the Northern Quarter and what it symbolises, from the wintry rain of the Kaliak to the Kabbalistic perspectives of the North as a place of fertile fertility and growth. The important thing, as I mentioned in previous episodes, however, is to use what symbols most resonate with you as an individual. Don't just follow things blindly. Um, you know, work out what symbols mean and what's important to you what does the north what does what does that mean to you in terms of your own personal practice and your own inner world we've got some really exciting episodes coming up in the future including episodes on magical talismans and amulets magical intention um, polarity magic and much much more so please stay tuned also, if you have enjoyed this episode, please like and follow us on iTunes or whatever platform you are listening to this on, as it will really help us to continue to get this message out there. 
to finish this episode, I'd like to read a poem written by the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley called The Cold Earth Slept Below. The cold earth slept below, above the cold sky shone, and all around with a chilling sound, from caves and ice and fields of snow, the breath of night like death did flow, beneath the sinking moon. The wintry hedge was black, the green grass was not seen, the birds did rest on the bare thorn's breast, whose roots beside the pathway track had bound their folds o'er many a crack, which the frost had made between. Thine eyes glowed in the glare of the moon's dying light, as a fen fire's beam on a sluggish stream gleams dimly so the moon shone there and it yellowed the strings of thy tangled hair that shook in the wind of night. The moon made thy lips pale, beloved, the wind made thy bosom chill, the night did shed on thy dear head its frozen dew, and thou didst lie, where the bitter breath of the naked sky might visit thee at will.